I don't think you know what the word better means um, because I don't feel better after what you said. (laughs) You could restore. Welcome to Backup Central's Restored All Podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup. And I have with me my special friend, Ovaltine Jenkins. How's it going, persona? <laughs> I'm good, Curtis. So just for folks who are listening, that reference is to the TV show Psych, where the character is always given a different name every time he's introduced. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I love that show so much. Um, so, I do too, Curtis. How have you been yeah. doing? I'm doing all right. I, 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 you know, you know, I've been, I've embarked on my, my woodworking craziness. You know, that's my, my latest, I'm so over the meat aging thing. <laughs> that was last week's news. And by, and by over, I mean, I mean, it's, it's ongoing and it's boring now. Right. Because you have to I, wait 30 days in between. Right. So you do have to wait 30 days. And, uh, and I, I actually, <laughs> I, I had a, some guests that came over and, um, for my birthday, uh, for my 55th birthday. Happy birthday. Thanks. Uh, and we, and I pulled out, uh, a brisket that I was aging for 30 days and I pulled it out at 20 days because I was impatient and I had people over, but, um, and now I'm aging a new brisket and I'm going to pull it early for the Super Bowl. But, um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's boring now. And so I'm off to woodworking and I was just, I just was going to get ready to start working on building my my shed outdoors, um, uh, you know, to go over my pool thing. And, uh, and then the skies opened up for the last three days. So that's sort of where I'm at. So I'm all, I'm all frustrated and stuck indoors. How about you? No. Yeah. I've been stuck indoors as well. It started raining. Although today it's nice. There's actually snow on the mountains and the, or the hills around me. Mm. So I think the next three days, but being in Northern California, we definitely need the rain. So I'm excited for a storm. I don't mind being indoors. So it's all good. Hmm. But I thought that you were going to put your woodworking on hold so you can finish up the final edits to your book. Oh, I, yeah, I, there's that as well, right? So I, I I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, right? Um, the Actually, today, uh, O'Reilly released the, um, what do you call it? The, uh, the early release version. Like That's like the first five chapters of it is available on the, uh, the O'Reilly learning platform, which you may or may not have access to. You can get a two-week free subscription. But, uh, so yeah, so I can, like, I can taste it now. So it's, it's, that's exciting. You know, it, it is exciting. It's right at 500 pages. Uh, I'm, I'm currently editing the uh, database backup chapter, which I think is the hardest chapter in the book. But that is why you have tech editors, right? That is why I have tech editors and tech helpers and all these kind of people. Yeah. So super excited that that's going to happen. Both Prasanna and I do work for Druva. This is not a Druva podcast. The opinions that you hear are our own. So we have a a, a new guest um, on uh, uh, the podcast here. I have known him for quite a long time. He's been in the uh, industry, uh, like myself, over 25 years. I got to know him back in his uh, NetApp days. He's got a lot of background in databases. He, he uh, He's worked with a number of uh, cloud companies like AWS and Google. And then he broke out of the storage world, got into uh, machine learning, and got an interest in blockchain, which led him to co-found this company called Chainkit. He is the CEO and co-founder. Welcome to the podcast, Val Berkovici. It is a pleasure to be here. The last time I saw you, I think we were having drinks in a bar next to VMworld, I think, in San Francisco. Sounds just about right. That was a few years ago. But I haven't seen anybody, anybody in a year. I don't know what, I don't even know what people look like. Curtis is missing everyone. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, you know, I don't know if you've seen this on the line where they say, hey, uh, introverts, please go check on your extrovert friends. They are not okay. (laughs) I haven't, but I I totally empathize on both sides. Yesterday, my granddaughter had a visitor from her school where she goes. And I've met the the girl's mother before. And when she showed up, I, I spoke to her for a few minutes. And I guess longer than she had expected. And she was talking to my daughter and she said, so am I to guess that your dad hasn't had a lot of 
uh, <laughs> adult companionship lately. <laughs> and I'm like, she goes, yeah, he's kind of stuck inside quite a bit. Doesn't have anybody to talk to. Because my wife is as more than half the time my wife's down with her mother because she's over 80 and then I'm up here, you know, to fend my fend for myself. But uh, just a quick note, we recorded this week's episode before last week's episode. And as I was listening uh, to Val talk, I realized that I knew I was in the dark on a few basics of this technology. And so I thought that you might be uh, in the dark as well given that I focus on backup and, you know, this is a backup podcast, I figured that the same might be true of you. So we went and recorded last week's episode to give some of that technology, you know, basic stuff before then going on to this week's episode. But as a result, there will be some things I think that we cover in this week's episode that was also covered uh, in the last week's episode. I'm not going to chop them out just for sake of having a natural flow of conversation, but I thought I would at least mention that. By the way, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, uh, unless you're, you know, a blockchain guru, you might want to go check that out. And um, I think there was a lot of really good information there. So back to the podcast. Well, we are uh, finally glad to 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 finally have you on here. Uh, we've been wanting to have you on for a while, so I'm glad to work this out. So we we need to uh, we need to start somewhere because we're going to talk about uh, some areas of technology that that I don't understand very well, and so um, and I know that you you. I know that you somewhat moved off of the, the the blockchain word, but I think that's where we kind of need to start. So why don't, why don't we just start with that, um, with what in the world is, maybe, maybe we'll say, what is blockchain and DLT uh, related to blockchain? Perfect. And, you know, the, it's a great way to start. Uh, we all, we kind of like to refer to it as the B word inside the company because it's a Depending on the audience and the geography, it's a very polarizing term. So interestingly enough, if we were to have this conversation in Switzerland or for Swiss audiences, or maybe Singapore or places like Estonia or Malta, those regions, those audiences love and adore blockchain. And it's becoming a key part of their economy, you know, job creation, all that good stuff. However, you know, we're an American company. We not only just sell to a lot of IT audiences, we sell a lot domestically, and the B word is despised by IT, and particularly cybersecurity people, for some obvious reasons, right? There was a speculative bubble and hype about three or four years ago that got way out of control. I remember and that. Even now, even now, people just think Bitcoin, blockchain, blockchain, Bitcoin synonymously, and there are a couple of unifying, very underlying technologies that we use, but... You know, we, for example, and I think almost every enterprise company that, that uses the B word doesn't do payments or settlements necessarily. There's so many other interesting applications. And that's why, you know, you and I were joking about DLT. I, I have a different sort of trigger connotation in my brain today, both coming from the storage background. Today, it's distributed ledger technology. And I'll dive into that and how that's different than blockchain and, and how we apply that. So before you get there, could you kind of talk about, I know you mentioned blockchain, Bitcoin, they're different and kind of what you've been doing is different. Can you just kind of talk at a very high level about that or get more into detail on that? Right. So what is blockchain? You know, we could spend hours on that, but if I were to net it out uh, for people, you know, audiences like ours, particularly with backgrounds like ours, blockchain is a horrible, horrible database because it's much, much slower than a database. It has almost none of the... Uh, abstraction layers like the old ODBC, JDBC layers. It has very little application support with modern applications we use today. But you're the doing a great job selling this, Val, I got to <laughs> say. <laughs> so that's why you're seeing such low, low traction in the enterprise for blockchain, because enterprises are used to certain characteristics of a database. But here's where blockchain fills a massive and distributed ledgers, how we apply them in particular at Chainkit, fill a massive you know, risk and security gap, and that's on the integrity front. So whereas databases are really fast, you know, there's so many options we just talked about between SQL, NoSQL, hybrid consistency options that are out there nowadays, there's a, just a, a plethora, an abundance of really great database options, depending on the kind of application, the kind of data, the kind of workflows you want to implement. So many of them are available as a service, as a cloud service, very, very mature technology. 
But here's their one fundamental flaw, really, you know, almost a critical, you know, uh, flaw, which is that when you look at the heart of a cybersecurity attack today, and this is ubiquitous, this is almost every cybersecurity attack, there's something called privilege escalation. And if you're not familiar with that term, it's a geeky cybersecurity term. What it means is your attacker has just now assumed the role and authority of your network or your system or your database admin, which effectively means they're operating as God on your network, impersonating your administrators to do whatever they want. And when when your abuser, your attacker has the ability to do whatever they want, there's countless damage that's done. And this is why headlines every day, whether it was you know data breaches in 2018 and 19, ransomware kind of took over the headlines in 2020. And we're all talking about supply chain integrity because of the big solar winds hack at the end of last year. Those are the kinds of things that happen and will continue to happen because just like databases, you know, our networks and our systems don't have the integrity to know in the Spider-Man meme who's Spider-Man and who are the other two Spider-Men pointing at the other Spider-Men. That's the fundamental problem we have that blockchains can solve and distributed ledgers particularly solve very well. So let me let me try to net that out because there was a lot in there. Um, so blockchain, so distributed ledger is a generic term of which blockchain is one. Is that is that fair? Blockchain is a superset. Blockchain oh. adds wallets and payment settlement capabilities to a fundamental underlying distributed ledger technology. Oh, okay. All right. So, um, all right. That that's important because um, I actually. And you're now that I think about it, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's a whole bunch of other things. But so when you say a distributed ledger, so like you said, it's it's a database, but it doesn't work very good as a database, but it does work very good at what? I think that that was a part that I was missing. Yeah. You know, you keep staying within a database world. Imagine that you had a truly immutable tamper-proof and easily tamper-evident ledger or transaction log. Mm -hmm. Today, transaction logs do a good job of innocently and academically recording the history of transactions until someone, an adversary with the power to do so, can overwrite them with impunity. And that's when they start to fail. And that's where we try and look for digital audit trails in a lot of things we do today. And we lack them by and large because we can't prove the integrity and the legal words are provenance and lineage of some of this key data when we look at it forensically. So it's not necessarily about making it re- or immutable in terms of that record itself, but it's kind of keeping track of an audit of how things might have changed and who did the changing over time. And those records are immutable. That's kind the business problem we're solving with DLTs. Again, the subset of blockchain is now we can create true audit trails of initially any log file, whether it's a traditional of you know Windows security event log or whether it's a database transaction log or any combination thereof. And that audit that audit trail is immutable. Yeah, and, and you know immutable is one way to look at it. When coming from the storage world, that was one attribute. What's much more valuable is to look at it as objectively provable, which means that throughout its life cycle, there's no one entity that you have to trust that can be compromised. But there's an objective way, which in, in the DLT world means that is a, there's a consensus of hundreds or often thousands and tens of thousands of independent uh, authorizers, validators, as we call them, nodes in a DLT, all under separate domains of control. And they reach a consensus and they objectively assert or prove that, yes, this particular element, you know, often a hash, for example, or some other thing, is what it claims to be and is what it was at the beginning, middle and end of its life cycle, or what you're presenting me has clearly been tampered with. And depending on the granularity of the DLT, here's exactly when it was tampered, perhaps even by whom. Interesting. So, yeah, so immutable, to me, immutable isn't, you know, you and I have spent a lot of time in the store. To me, immutability is not a storage term. It's a generic term which says the thing can't be changed right often we solve that with storage but you know you have worm media that you know for example once you write you can't but it sounds like this isn't this is this isn't even that it's not immutable even from a data perspective per se it 
I, I forgot the words that you used, but basically you said you can prove that the yeah. data is what it, I don't know how to put that back the into phrase, the same the phrase, It's The most concise phrase we've come up with so far is objectively provable. Objectively provable. You can prove. I like that phrase. <laughs> yeah, I like that. You can objectively prove that this record is the same as it was when it was written. Does that? How, that how, that's the case. And, and, you know, not to go down a rabbit hole, but one of the things I remember doing some threat modeling when we were working with large archiving vendors using immutable media, such as Worm Media, was that the actual media management, particularly if, if uh, the media was taken offsite from a data center, there's so many real world vulnerabilities towards, you know, how much does the truck driver make and what would a hundred dollar bribe do to that truck driver's behavior? And, how much the people just physically managing the media and what would it take to swap out one worm drive for another with almost similar contents that were copied mm -hmm. over. So there's all these interesting threat scenarios and risk, you know, detailed digital risk scenarios that when you really dig into them, leave these vulnerabilities in that chain, if you will, of custody. And the, the, those are the vulnerabilities that we've been plugging now using this kind of technology where we, we literally call it a digital chain of custody to complement paper chains of custody often used in forensics. Even digital forensics use paper chains of custody, ironically, today. And so the ability to maintain a fully digital chain of custody throughout evidence lifecycle, which starts off as just a Windows security log or an Oracle transaction log, those become some really interesting use cases. And, and frankly, it's almost like digital transformation finally coming to this, you know, a big part of the cybersecurity world, world ironically. So it, it's used or, or you're using it to, I, I guess you can use it for a variety. So, okay. So let me back off here. So you have this, this journal, right. That has records and you can prove that those records today are, you know, the same as they were when you were given them. Uh, so, so really it's this sort of, it's a, what, what do you, we call it a record? What? Well, no, I would say the, what the term record of authority, is that the right, the right term? Yeah. That, that's uh, that, a database term, right? Yeah. Um, but the, that's a valid term as well as, you know, an, you know, an authoritative record, um, uh, what is it? Yeah, or, yeah, that works. So I, I guess I guess my point is that you you have this, you know, this journal that can hold this information, and you've you've alluded to some problems that you can solve with this information that you have stored and that you can prove. So and and you've and it sounds like you've been focused. I don't know if you've focused exclusively on information security, but you certainly have so far in this recording, you've talked a lot about information security. So how do you take this log, this journal, and use it to solve security problems? Great question. My favorite question is you can imagine nowadays. Now, be, being a startup, we kind of have to gravitate more so than even others to where the urgent money is, right? Not just where the generic money is. So yeah. we have Can you let us know where that is, by the way, because you know, I really want to know where the money is. Uh, so there's actually some headline-driven examples, and certainly as of the past six weeks, that, that points to that very clearly right now that we're following. But we started our, 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 our story as a, a generic integrity as a service platform. And we found out after wandering in that desert, the go-to-market desert, for over a year that nobody wanted to buy that. So we actually, speaking of San Francisco, this is the 2019 RSA conference. It's part of the biggest cybersecurity marketing conference. You know, it used to be a very technical conference. It's kind of shifted away from that. But a lot of our industry friends said, you guys are wasting your time in the integrity market because it doesn't exist. But if you applied integrity to cybersecurity, you could solve some real problems. Mm -hmm. And that just had me literally dust off some virtual textbooks, if you will, and remember this old concept that's taught in computer science and is certainly taught in cybersecurity classes even today. And it's something called the CIA triad, which has nothing to do with the Central Intelligence Agency. The C stands for confidentiality, which is largely encryption and password management and you know a lot of the conventional security tools we use today. The I is integrity and the A is availability. And you're taught in school something that still holds today, even in the non-academic world, 
is that good cyber or the best possible cybersecurity strikes the right balance between those things. And so what's interesting is if you just, you know, you can either look at this or you can paint this model in your mind. When you've got a triangle with confidentiality in one corner, that's where data breaches, you know, the focus on mitigating those was basically let's encrypt data to let prying eyes that were not authorized not see the data they're not authorized. And data breaches were an attack on confidentiality. So that's where a lot of the industry, even today, is over-concentrated, is on the C part of the CIA triad. But then there's the polar opposite almost of that, that triangle. You've got integrity and availability. And there's been a really violent pendulum swing in the industry, given, you know, driven by ransomware, you know, towards not so much the data breach risk, even though it's there, but it's fundamentally the data integrity risk and the need to have availability. This is your world and I, you know, my world. You know, is um, the ability to have copies of data that readily let you, you know, mit- respond and recover from those ransomware attacks. So we've seen one violent pendulum swing towards away from confidentiality, towards the intersection of integrity and availability. And then December 13th happened. And I think the cybersecurity world has really never been the same since. And that's when we had these unprecedented scope of breadth and depth of supply chain and second stage identity attacks that are unfortunately known by the brand name SolarWinds hack, even though SolarWinds is now proving to be a smaller part of a much, much bigger campaign. But that has really shifted the focus on integrity, which has been an underserved and unloved part of the triad for decades. So there's a lot going on. If you just take a look at what the recent events have been over the past 18 months, there's been a really big shift all of a sudden in the center of gravity, as I like to say, of the CIA triangle. Yeah, yeah, that's really, it, it's interesting. Different parts of the industry focus on different parts of that triangle for sure, right? Um, and, and we we try, I, I know, you know, and by we, I'm, I mean, just sort of data protection people, um, because I, I, I do think that, for example, when, when it comes to uh, backups, uh, you you know you do need availability and you do need um, integrity and and that uh, but at the same time if those backups fall into someone's hands uh, you don't want those people to be able to read those backups so you also look at confidentiality right, um, right. but your backups. the what's that encrypt your backups right encrypt your backups please encrypt your backups but um, so can I. Can I, sir, jump into the encryption part? Because I think it's a really great lead into why this all matters now. So many people are under the misconception that when you encrypt your data, whether it's at rest or in flight, you're mitigating a large part of of not just the confidentiality risk, but the integrity and availability risk. And, And here's where that breaks down. So on the one hand, we see that the way the SolarWinds hack unfolded there's two major stages, and there's a couple of other ones we will, we'll discuss later. They're out of scope. But the first two major stages was a very subtle and sophisticated tampering of the software supply chain inside SolarWinds, and then its automatic distribution to up to 18,000 of their 400,000 customers. So the whole concept of supply chain, and this is code integrity with dependencies and artifacts and so forth, that that is first and foremost an integrity challenge and all the encryption was working 100% perfectly in that context, right? So this is why the balance of integrity with confidentiality and availability is so critical is that just because all these compromised identities of developers inserting malicious code were able to do so with the proper passwords and proper two-factor authentication and they had all the proper keys to insert their malware into this legitimate code, it proves that encryption is not enough. You know, if there's one takeaway for most people, particularly outside, but even inside cybersecurity, is that encryption is great, but it's one third of the solution. And so that's something that we need to really instill into people before we even get to the second stage, which is the more damaging stage of this particular attack. Yeah, I think, um, and I, I don't think anybody like myself would have ever said that encryption is the only um you know, solution for sure. Uh, but I definitely, and I also think that there is an assumption that the supply chain hasn't been tampered with, 
<laughs> right. Sometimes um, work until they don't. So you, yeah. you could you could have you know I could send something through a pipe and on the other end I could still have perfectly encrypted data, but in between that you know during that path that the data could have been completely replaced by you know uh, totally worthless data. Right. Uh, it's still encrypted. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the politically right. correct term is now monkey in the middle, MITM attack, but that's exactly what it is. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So, okay. So you're, you're continuing to make me uneasy. So the question is, how do you, you know, this just sounds like such a large problem. How, so do, how do you solve that with a, with a ledger? Let me make you feel a bit better because, again, the, the software supply chain problem is not at all unique to SolarWinds. In fact, we saw them as nothing more than sort of a vector, literally a Trojan, into other much bigger software suppliers. So um, FireEye, you know, big, big, highly respected cybersecurity company was one of them. Peers like Malwarebytes on the consumer side were also breached. And, you know, uh, Intel, Cisco, but the biggest software supplier of all is Microsoft. And we've only begun to scratch the surface of their multiple breaches that were, you know, executed and conducted by these operators, these attackers and others using these specific attack vectors. So there definitely are, there's an industry-wide problem that's always been there, is getting much more focus and attention than ever before, which is let us really buttress and stop assuming, but start explicitly verifying the integrity of our software. And it's a, an extension literally of a concept we've heard that's gotten a lot of legitimate prominence in cybersecurity called zero trust, which is always explicitly verify everything you're doing as part of a regular user accessing an application. And now the focus is on what is it that they're accessing? Where's the integrity of that resource they're accessing? Zero trust extended ZTX is really the concept that we need to be applying everywhere now. And let me, you know, pause there, see if there's any questions, and then talk about specifically how we apply it to the more damaging and the more risky and the easier to solve second stage of this attack. I don't think you know what the word better means, because um, I don't <laughs> feel better after what you yes. said. <laughs> but go ahead. Go ahead uh, it's, all, it's all relative. <laughs> and the reason it's relative is that, again, you know, software supply chains have been compromised for years. We just are, are talking about it because of the unprecedented scope of this particular attack and the victims in question being most of the U.S. government. And I think officially now somewhere north of 155 of the Fortune 500s. But it's all relative. The much more damaging part was the second stage. And that's where these attackers, and I use the, the simple analogy of a locksmith. These attackers realize it. Instead of trying to break into 18,000 doors, front doors, it's easier to just break into the locksmith and create silent copies of 18,000 keys, which is what the first stage of this attack was. However, the second stage of this attack, again, at 155 or more Fortune 500s plus about 8 to 10 identified federal agencies, the second stage of that attack is once I'm silently in the front door with impunity, having tripped zero alarms, I'm going to now identify every lock in that house. And I'm going to create myself, again, silently, a copy of every key to every lock in every house I've just gotten into. That's the problem scary. here. That's, That's really the scary, scary part. But yeah. this is where there are solutions today. And, and we're we're one of them. We're sort of first movers in this particular space. And the, the but the better part is the, the the thing that I'm supposed to feel good about is that this is now going to get the attention that it should have had all along. Is that what you're saying? Uh, that's one of it at a high level. But here's a very hands-on better part. Many organizations use technologies like Splunk and Elasticsearch. Microsoft has a great new security analytics tool called Sentinel. And IBM's got a great, you know, install base with a product they call QRadar. So there's a long, SolarWinds themselves sells a security analytics tool that wasn't impacted by this attack to the best of our knowledge. So many of these organizations already have logging, centralized logging, and they do analysis of it. So let me get to a good news, bad news scenario here. The bad news is you can't trust any of those logs right now because one of the things these adversaries have been documented in doing is wiping these logs, you know, selectively just removing entries that would incriminate them. 
uh, and and just continuing to operate with impunity for months, if not the better part of a year. So that's the bad news. But let me get to the good news. The good news is when you apply integrity technology, particularly in a streaming context, which up until recently was an oxymoron, you can have streaming encryption, you can have stream avail- streaming availability by just having multiple copies of a stream. No one's really delivered or implemented streaming integrity. And that's now an application of distributed ledgers that's possible. As soon as you apply an enterprise quality of service to a distributed ledger, and again, that's what Chainkit does is it lets you do that. All of a sudden now you can have objective provability of your logs from end to end. And when you have that, you have either the last part or maybe a full part of a forensic time machine which is really game-changing for many, many use cases, but really begins to mitigate these very dangerous risks, you know, hands-on now. It's interesting. Now, wouldn't, though, these attackers, because I know you said it's part of the logging infrastructure, um, now, but now doesn't the distributed ledger become sort of a attack vector, if you will, or an attack surface? I, I like how you think. I'll hire you right now because that's, Proper adversarial thinking is everything is attacked and everything is vulnerable. And this is where the distributed ledgers really add, you know, very, very sort of binary off to on, you know, dark to light value, which is a traditional ledger can and will be attacked. So there was actually a very popular tool that's still in use today called Tripwire. Started as an open source tool. You might remember 29 years ago. You know, became a company. They've broadened on to other services now. But fundamentally, you used to be able to take a hash of a file, store it in their database, and then check it later. And you had static integrity monitoring, or what's known as file integrity monitoring, FIM. That started to break down about 15, 20 years ago when data became non-static, became much more dynamic and active as it is today. And that's been one of the big gaps in the CIA triad is the C and the A have kept up with cloud and big data analytics and machine learning and all these pipelines we use today. The Kinesis streams that took down all of AWS, you know, it's streaming is the cloud today and vice versa. So integrity for streams has not been a thing until you can apply A, the quality of service to keep up with the pace of a data stream, but most importantly to your question, B, the system state of what it is you're storing, where you're storing, for example, these hashes of log lines, the system state is fully decentralized. It's in a distributed ledger, meaning that when you attack the ledger, yes, you'll succeed at attacking one node, and you might succeed at attacking 100 or 1,000 nodes. But if you've got the proper ledger in place and, and you're looking at the governance model of that ledger, and just quite frankly, the transparency of how decentralized it is, and that's why I'm a big fan of public ledgers, even though you can have public or private ledgers involved here. When you see that the ledger itself can still reach consensus despite having 10 or 20 or 30% of it compromised, that's the real power. It's, it's, it's bas- basically strong math, but it's as objectively provable and as fundamentally simple as math. And so the, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. So the infrastructure is resilient to attacks, you could say. Very resilient. Again, nothing is perfect. And if you get into the distributed ledger world and over and above that, when you start to put crypto tokens on top of DLTs, you start talking about uh, you know, compromising the blockchain and what's known as 51% attacks. And that's literally when you generate enough hash power, which is something you can rent as a cloud service, a resource you can attack a distributed ledger and generate enough hash power to basically say, no, I am the authoritative copy now because I have more than 51% or more than 50% control of all the nodes in this ledger. And again, it's all a good news, bad news thing where yes, it's possible to attack any ledger that way, but it's not cheap, right? So for some of the bigger ledgers, particularly the transparent public ones, particularly given crypto prices today, if you were to try and do that, it would cost you over a million dollars every hour with anywhere from a zero to a 0.3% chance of success every hour. So the economics are just not there for adversaries to try. And, and this is why, you know, even though in the enterprise context, you don't start the conversation with Bitcoin, you can end it to answer this question because the Bitcoin network, forgetting about the value of the, of the Bitcoin you know, crypto token, 
but the actual distributed ledger network that's been operated for over a dozen years now has never lost integrity. It's been attacked 24-7-365 every millisecond. And the motivation to attack it is 600 or odd you know, billion dollars right now. It's not small, and yet it's never been compromised. So it's that strong distributed integrity, the strong distributed math, cryptographic math, that we apply in the enterprise context. And the value of the Bitcoin token is irrelevant because particularly the way we do it, we're not bound to any one DLT or blockchain. There's a whole abstraction layer where you as a customer get to pick which DLT singular or plural, you can apply to this problem. I'm parsing all of this. Yeah. <laughs> Curtis is like, my brain is trying to catch up. And let me give you one other important detail because you will hear, you'll see headlines even the other day about a Bitcoin exchange that was compromised and had a data breach or whatever. That occurs all the time. The periphery of a DLT, the on-ramp and on off-ramp, if you will, that can be attacked all the time because depending on the implementation, those are largely centralized technologies that have a central point of attack and therefore ultimately will always be vulnerable. But once you get to the actual decentralized ledger network itself, that's the thing that has proven remarkably resilient under you know overwhelming attacks, continuous attacks. Now, for an enterprise, so since Chainkit is looking to help address some of the cybersecurity issues in enterprises, Deploying this large number of nodes must be expensive. So is Chainkit as a service or what do people normally do in the enterprise space, I guess? That's a really great implementation question. And we find ourselves in this early phase of the market being a lot, you know, consultants as much as a SaaS company, which is what we are. So the simplest default option we have for everyone is we'll explain to you what's going on and have this discussion about the strength of a truly decentralized ledger. And by default, we'll just use this one, this public ledger called Ethereum, because it's, it's, it's a public ledger, meaning it's got a transparent and open governance model. You know the number of nodes and you know the precise level of decentralization of that ledger. It's under attack constantly and it's withstood almost all attacks throughout its life cycle. So it's got literally the, the weight of hundreds of billions of dollars of confidence in the integrity of the underlying network. So by default, the customers don't have to make a choice if after education, they, they're happy with the default one. But as we talk to more and more, you know, public sector, military, classified customers in all nations, not just the US, there's a lot of reasons, legitimate ones, why they don't want even just a, a hash that's quite secure and private, particularly a strong one like a SHA-512 or 2048. They don't even want that hash on a public ledger. They don't want anyone to correlate what they're doing with anything else. So they do want to roll their own ledger and then you just get to the basics of what is a blockchain and strip away the payments and settlement layers. What is a DLT? And what are those core components? It's governance model, it's transparency, it's levels of decentralization, which means independent domains of controls for X number of nodes. And the academic math behind that is actually pretty, pretty achievable, I should say. It's, if you can get anywhere from 10 to ideally 32 nodes in a distributed ledger, and every one of those nodes has a, you know, what I mean by separate domain of control is there isn't one administrative account or even the you know, administrative group that manages more than one of those nodes. So it's truly, you know, separate people from separate companies and separate domains with obviously separate identities. When you have that level of decentralization from 10 to mathematically sort of a peak of 32, if you can get to 32 separate domains of control, the way these consensus algorithms work, you might you might uh, hear the term Byzantine, you know, consensus algorithm. Though these are age-old concepts from, from old military warfare, but um, when you can get to that level of decentralization, you've got very high integrity, more than you really ever had in, in any modern computing scenario in the past, and you can apply that again to a database transaction, to a Windows security event log, to anything where you know, to a, to a contract, right? Uh, or anything where integrity and uh, digital evidence, for example, in the court proceeding where that matters. So you had mentioned uh, separation of ownership, I think is what you called it? Yeah, separate, you know, so separate domains of control. Oh, separate domains of control. So in an enterprise, so how practical is that? Is that because if you're in an enterprise, you might have a 
typically a single IT group that sort of provides a service. And in this case, you're saying that would not work in the case of deploying a ledger. You probably want separate people, not under the same admin group, and probably not even part of the same group, owning these nodes. So they are kind of isolated. This is why I'm such a big fan of having that consultative education discussion, because the best answer for 99% of enterprises is not to roll their own ledger. Gotcha. It's to use a public ledger for all the reasons I described before. It's, it's transparent. You can objectively verify the decentralization as well as the integrity. And you can, you can cross off all your audit criteria by understanding the ledger. However, in a, in a more traditional enterprise context, the best analogy is thinking about you know, the, the nuclear launch code briefcase and how you typically have to have multiple keys turning to launch a nuclear missile. It's the exact same thing here. You've got to be able to have, ideally, not just people in the same administrative group, but if we use Microsoft parlance here, you know, terminology, you want to have not just different Active Directory forests, you want to have different Active Directories involved, and you want to have administrators or other authorized, privileged identities be part of as heterogeneous an identity mechanism as possible that actually are the domains of control for each one of these, you know, four, 10, ideally 32 nodes. So it's a non-trivial problem to have a traditional administrative identity management system, traditional enterprise identity management system, such as Okta or Active Directory. It's non-trivial to just create firewalls between them and, and isolate them as much as possible. So um, <laughs> this is so far outside my, my world. My brain hurts, but um, so I just had a, a, a sort of a question that came to me that I haven't really thought of before. So I get the concept of a public ledger, and I get that uh, I get the absolute advantages to that, and obviously I get that there are certain entities that might not want to use that, and and I get that rolling your own, like you really need to have to do it, right? Here's here just a random thing that had never occurred to me before. This public ledger, there's a cost with every record that's put into a public ledger. And this ledger is sitting on computers somewhere. Um, how, how does that cost get, who, who bears that cost? That's another great question. So that's one of the advantages of private ledgers is the cost can be artificial, it can be trivial. But there is a mining cost you're often referring to, or nowadays also called a staking cost, towards processing and then having independent objective validation of those transactions. And that's where a lot of the controversy is around Bitcoin in particular and the overwhelming amount of energy, because it's fundamentally an energy arbitrage technology right now that's being staked to prove the integrity of these things. And this is a, a really volatile, dynamic field of innovation right now. There are lots of projects, either referred to as side chains or state channels. You might hear terms like Lightning Network around the Bitcoin network. You might hear about just Ethereum 2 and, and state channel technologies and the Ethereum ecosystem. People are trying to figure out a reasonable compromise between fully decentralized ledgers and some kind of accelerator technology that has to have a level of centralization involved for performance and efficiency to be able to effectively, to use your term, generate you know, a high transaction load with low latency on top of these really cool decentralized integrity things, these DLTs. And right now, this is where VCs are investing. This is an open area for both academic research as well as engineering and innovation, you know, invention as well as innovation. And, and right, we've decided to chain kit, you know what? There's some great promising technologies in the future that are being open source that when they mature, we'll just adopt as soon as possible. But it's an unsolved problem for a bunch of uh, varied combined use cases today. And we don't have that. We have one use case. We just want to have an acceleration, for example, with one of our big reference customers, Broadcom. They process 4 billion security events every hour. These happen to be on a system called Splunk for log analytics. And you've got to be able to keep up with exactly that volume of data. You've got to have the ability to verify in a decentralized way the integrity of 4 billion events every hour 
And that's what we've decided to accelerate. It's just that use case. It's a narrow use case. We use a proprietary acceleration mechanism that's patented on top of that proprietary abstraction mechanism. So it's not just the one ledger. And that solves the enterprise requirement of just have me register the integrity of this thing as it's this Windows event log, for example, as it's generated in a decentralized, objectively provable way. And then anytime in the future from the next millisecond to the next year or decade, let me at, a, at def, different cadence objectively verify off that decentralized base what it is that was registered. And then I know, have I got integrity or don't I? I think that's actually really awesome tech and a direction to go in because as we've noticed in the recent past, right, there are so many issues and the question always gets raised about how do you prove the authenticity of something? And it's also the applicability in other cases, even beyond cybersecurity. Uh, For instance, I know there are companies looking at using distributed ledgers for things like real estate titles and not having to use a title company in order to be able to prove the validity of these things. So seeing it used in a cybersecurity aspect, especially in this uh, right now, I think is a very interesting use case of DLT. That's exactly it. You know, we we joke, we like to be perhaps one of the most boring applications of blockchain. <laughs> we're, we're not doing these multi-party things where you get a whole network of people to agree to these joint smart contracts and all that. We're doing this single party thing where we're taking a Windows event log and as soon as it's generated, we're registering the integrity of that. As it gets tampered with by these modern adversaries, we're the only ones to actually see that. It's a stealthy thing. And that just has all these compounding benefits towards detecting attacks early, having correct information when you're doing the incident response, knowing whether you have integrity and what you're recovering from or not. And we're doing a lot of work, for example, even with the Secret Service right now. This would be the Treasury Department protecting the dollar side, not necessarily protecting the president side, but all around law enforcement engagement when fraud is involved. And nowadays, almost all fraud is digital. Uh, and so, you know, protecting the integrity of the investigation and helping with the life cycle of digital evidence throughout an investigation, those are the cool use cases for having this forensic time machine capability. So, the one question I had is I know typically with ledgers, this the amount of data you can store is finite, right? It's usually very, very small amount of kilobytes. Um, how is that a problem when you're looking at the cybersecurity and trying to prove the authenticity of logs? Yeah, I mean, uh, so this is, again, uh, one of these very understandable engineering compromises for people that have built product or deploy them hands-on is you can have you know, really broad integrity that's slow or you can have really broad integrity or, or very narrow integrity that's fast. And, and making that engineering trade-off of what part of it is decentralized, what part of it is centralized, what part of it is in memory versus over a network or on disk, and figure out how to accelerate at least a subset of those things. But fundamentally, the less you put on a distributed ledger, the faster it will be. And so one of the common mistakes we've seen over and over again in a lot of you know, let's just call them not successful enterprise blockchain projects, is people trying to use them as a database. And you remember what I started <laughs> the conversation with, right? These are horrible databases. And, and, and you know, the latency problems and the lack of decentralization as a result of trying to achieve halfway decent latency or any kind of transaction volume, it just all falls flat. You just can't make all those things reconcile. So realizing that metadata or just logs or attesting to the integrity of logs that's just a more natural data structure, data volume to put on a distributed ledger that can be accelerated. It can be quickly decentralized and distributed. That seems to be what's working today, and that's how we're applying it. Awesome. Now, uh, I know you mentioned a couple times about sort of don't use this as a database. Could you kind of talk about, in general, the transactions per second that you've seen with distributed ledger technologies? Yes, and again, give people an idea of sort of how bad is bad. There are, you know, there are people that are trying to solve this at the lowest layers. There's a a particular blockchain technology called IOTA that comes out of the automotive world, the IoT connected car world, where they're making some trade offs between centralization and decentralization at the lowest layers of those protocols. And they're getting very high transaction rates, thousands, millions per second. But again, there are certain trade offs there. And 
for me, it's not as clean a separation of what is decentralized and what is centralized that I can see. So what I like are these, I mentioned them before, the state channel technologies or side chains that sit alongside, you know, a slower, more decentralized chain with high integrity. And that's the architecture that we use at ChainKit, where we have these very distinct layers and we know what is an integrity layer. That's going to be your Hyperledger, you know, DLT, or it's going to be your Ethereum or Bitcoin DLT. We know what that is. And then we know distinctly what is an acceleration or abstraction layer first on top of that. And that way we kind of know where we can audit what's being audited. We know where we can debug if there's a problem. That's the kind of architecture that I think is going to succeed. You know, we're seeing it firsthand in the enterprise initially. And like anything else, you know, when we had raw TCP IP protocols, it was a great, great innovation for the internet, but it didn't exactly create, you know, result in explosive usage until we had web, until we had mobile phones in our hands and lots of other layers of abstraction. So the same thing is happening. Even this world, this word you'll hear quite a bit in blockchain discussion called DeFi, D-E-F-I, decentralized finance. There's lots of things that does, but it's fundamentally another layer of abstraction on top of lower level blockchains like Ethereum that unlocks more innovation, unlocks more ease of use and repeatability and auditability and so forth. And it's just proving to me that we're literally rebuilding an OSI model <laughs> on top of all these things. And as we get to a layer four-ish, five-ish, they've become usable in mainstream. And we're not there yet. We're like at layer two or three at best today. So th this functionality, this, you know, this idea of verifying integrity throughout the process, this... It, Am I wrong in that this could apply to pretty much any area of IT, which of, which of course would include our favorite area, um, you know, data protection and backup and recovery and all that? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. In fact, you know, you and I have assumed for the longest time that a transaction log of a database is is giving it a single source of transaction truth, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, the identity compromise of a DBA account today is trivial. The ability for that compromised identity to overwrite a transaction log with impunity is trivial. And so the, the sad reality, you know, back to scaring people today is every executive that I know of that's looking at their Tableau dashboards today, that's fed by a snowflake where a data source comes from S3 buckets or Kafka streams or anything in between, no one in their organization or outside their organization can prove to them that that dashboard they're looking at hasn't been tampered with because there isn't mainstream streaming integrity applied to the encryption end-to-end -to -end and to the availability of multiple data streams end-to-end -end or transformations. Transformations equal easy attack points. Every data set we look at today has been transformed at least once, if not multiple times. And the industry has to catch up. We need to broadly apply streaming integrity technology so we can stop assuming what we're looking at has integrity and actually explicitly verify. So we begin and end with uh, depression. So this is good. Um, <laughs> you know, good for you. You are in a, <laughs> I think, a huge, not even close to uh, tapped market. Um, Correct. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and and obviously this thing that happened, you know, I can, I can totally see you pointing at what happened, uh, or at least what we learned about on December 13th. Um, just as we point to, um, when, you know, when we see somebody, uh, accidentally delete a whole bunch of stuff on Microsoft 365 and we're like, see, we told you that you need to back it up, right? Stop telling us that you don't need to back it up. Um, yeah, I'm nodding my head. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I, I am absolutely convinced that I, that a lot of this particular podcast went way over my head and I'm okay with that. I hope that it, I hope that it was useful to some people out there that know a little bit more about this than I do. Uh, and um, I, I, I will take a, a, a small grain of, of hope from here that to go back to the beginning where you said that I could feel a little bit better that, that, that this has always been a problem, but that, Perhaps this is that watershed moment where we all finally wake up and realize that we need to start verifying things like this and we need to adopt a zero trust security model because um, that part I definitely understand. So um, that is the real silver lining here. There's got to be one and that's a big one. Yeah. All right. 
Well, uh, Val, thanks for thanks for coming on and blowing my mind. <laughs> I'm glad you you reminded me that I need to go back to basics with some of my my you know my own webcasts and slides and just explain these basics to people because I've been I've been in it and close to it too long. But there's some foundational, fundamental things here that you know people need to be aware of. And again, when you apply them, they solve real world business problems today more than ever. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm remind like a variation of the famous quote from the Princess Bride of like, you keep using that word. I don't think anybody no, knows what it. you think it means. <laughs> yeah, you keep saying integrity or streaming integrity. Yeah, you don't know what it means today. Yeah, so yeah. 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 No, but no, what I'm saying is I don't think anybody that you're talking to knows what it means other than you. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you need to explain those words because there's, there's just too many words in there that, uh, you know, somebody who hasn't been living in it just doesn't quite understand yet. This is why I love the opportunity to get out and speak about this kind of stuff, because awareness, market education is step number one, right? People have to understand that, you know, they read the headlines and know there's problems. They need to understand that there are solutions and they need to understand the Lego blocks that can build these solutions and implement them. Yeah, unfortunately, um, the acronym IAAS you know, integrity as a service, that acronym is already taken. So it is, and you know, the good news is no one's buying that anyway. So we haven't used that in like, you know, 18, 24 months ourselves. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, again, thanks a lot for coming on and thanks persona for, uh, I think, I think you took the lead here on this particular podcast. So th for, thanks for doing that. No worry. Yeah. I, I like uh distributed ledger technology. So I think there's a lot of great use cases for it. So looking forward to see what comes out of chain kit. And for the record, Absolutely. this would this would have been a lot easier on me if we always through the podcast referred to it as distributed ledger technology and not DLT because it hurts my brain when you say that because <laughs> that, that means digital linear tape to me. I think over time, you know, the the old DLT will fade, and this one will kind of rise to the floor as being a topic of enterprise discussion. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks to the listeners for sticking with us uh, uh, for this uh, a little bit longer than usual podcast. And I hope it was helpful and be sure to subscribe so that you can restore it all. System isn't worth a spade. Finally, I needed your backup. You had a chance to fix it, instead, it's all jacked up. See how I'll ride on Facebook about you. Don't underestimate the things that I will do. There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth a spade. Run, hoping that 
just for once it'll be completely done maybe 